Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page for bonus content such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content that may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. Jack awoke to the sound of his hut door opening and a horrid and sadly familiar sound of boots clanking against the floor of his hut suddenly got closer and closer. He knew what this was about. Next thing Jack knew, the figure hung over him like an angel of death, but instead of a sickle, he held a flashlight and put it inches from Jack's face. Good morning, Lieutenant Miller. You've been selected to fly today's mission, the man announced before heading over to Sal's bed and announced that Sal too had been selected to fly today's mission. As Jack turned on his lamp, the quarter officer gave Jack a light of a cigarette, which was custom, and said the following, It's now 0410. Breakfast has already started. Briefing will be at 0500, and engine start is scheduled to be at 0630. Good luck today, gentlemen. The officer then walked out of the door of the hut, and as he closed it, Jack looked over at Sal, and the two wondered what events awaited them today. Fifty minutes later, May 18th, 1944, United States Army Air Force Station 186, Thurlow, England, 0450. The briefing room was full of eager, tired, and anxious men who were all trying to rest their eyes or trying their best to hide the fact that they were uncomfortable with the prospect of death only being hours away. Jack was sitting among the group of men of Bad Penny, the crew that he was going to be flying with today as a replacement co-pilot, since Bill Davies had just come down with a nasty case of the flu. Sitting behind Jack, about five rows back was Sal, who was selected to sub in for Burke's cruise navigator. Unbeknownst to Jack and Sal, Beans, the only enlisted member of the crew to be selected to fly today, would be subbing in as a waste gunner on board Ronnie's crew. The formation for today was looking as good as it could be. The 300th would be flying in the second group in the high wing, while the 530th squadron was to fly in the high squadron. Leading the 530th today would be Burke and the crew of Stormy Knight. On his right would be Bitter Boy, flown by Lieutenant Erickson, and to his left would be the new crew in the new plane known as Jack the Ripper. 
flying the number four spot, which was back behind Stormy Night and Jack the Ripper, would be Parnell and the rest of Fenway Bombshell. Flying off Parnell's right would be Ronnie and the rest of the crew of Hellfire from above. Finally, flying off Parnell's left side would be none other than Jack and Tango flying in Bad Penny. Before Jack knew it, Colonel Poole walked in and made his way to the stage like he had done many times before. For Jack, today this would be his 15th mission and he could feel the wear and tear that each of those missions had on him. He was now officially halfway through his tour and he hoped today would be an easy mission. Colonel Poole gave his usual monologue and then pulled back the curtain to reveal the target for today. With enthusiasm, Colonel Poole announced that the 300th would be bombing the harbor at Cherbourg, France. The reaction across the room was mixed to say the least. Some men groaned, others celebrated, but a majority of the men seemed indifferent. Jack was one of them. Just three weeks prior, Jack and the rest of Lodabull flew a mission to bomb the same harbor, and from what Jack could remember, Cherbourg was an easy target, with more pros than cons. The target was close, meaning the mission would be a short one, and the men would most definitely be back in time for lunch. There also was a slim chance of them getting any fighter opposition, and the flak would be mild. Last time, only one plane had sustained any damage, and that was Texas. Little Bull returned without a single scratch on it. The downside of today's target was that since the 300th had just bombed this target less than a month ago, the Germans would have more than likely added additional smokescreens and flak batteries. Cherbourg was an important harbor to both the Allies and the Germans. If the Allies were ever to invade Europe, this harbor would need to be secured because of its vital importance. As the briefing continued, Colonel Poole announced that the formation, consisting of four groups of 220 B-17s, would need to bomb the target at an astonishing 15,000 feet. This was to ensure accurate bombing. This news caused an uproar among the men, as it meant that the flak would be more accurate and more intense. On top of that, the target itself was a lot more complex than it was last time. Last time the 300th had to bomb the harbor, the release point were on the docks in the harbor itself. However, this time, the release point was fixated on a group of large buildings just to the west of the harbor by about 300 feet. Intelligence believed that inside these large warehouse buildings contained stored weapons, ammunition, supplies, and even military vehicles, all bound for one of the many Nazi-occupied coastal ports all throughout Europe. Knocking these buildings out, as well as damaging the infrastructure of the harbor itself, could have monumental ramifications for the German war effort. Soldiers wouldn't receive vital equipment and supplies for them to continue their conquest, as well as halt any future plans of attacks or counterattacks in the coming days. To Jack, none of this mattered. If he had learned anything over the last two and a half months, it's that even the most successful bombing sortie would only cause a small ripple in an ocean. Even if they were to destroy the entire Sheerberg Harbor to the point where it would be officially, quote, wiped off the map, unquote, the Germans would rebuild and have the area back in full service within a month or so, and men like himself would have to bomb it all over again. As Jack looked around the room, 
He saw the faces of new pilots, navigators, and bombardiers, who all bore the same looks of pride and optimism that he had once had. Each of these men would be getting into their planes today and experience complete hell all while believing that they were somehow making a big difference in the war effort. Luckily, Jack didn't feel alone in these feelings, because judging by the looks on Tango's face, he felt the same way. Looking back at Ronnie, Jack could see that he too was looking over at the day's mission with complete skepticism. However, like Jack, these men were expected to do their jobs, and they were willing to go through with their jobs, if only to earn their ticket home. Before Jack knew it, the briefing was over, and Jack looked over at Tango and asked him if he was going to go to the pilot's briefing, to which Tango shook his head and expressed that he'd rather go get his plane set up and not be in a rush before takeoff. Jack and the rest of Tango's officers all agreed, and they all made their way out of the briefing hut and got ready to head to their plane. Meanwhile, over by the jeeps, Beans was sitting with the enlisted men from Hellfire from above. While he knew this crew, the only one he was friends with was Johnny C, who stood as the old men among the somewhat new crew members in his crew. Beans had a hard time getting out of bed, he was so tired. This was evident by the dark circles that surrounded his bloodshot eyes. Unfortunately, Beans' morning sluggishness caused him to miss morning mess. The only thing he had to grab was a cup of coffee, which he threw back as fast as he could in order to get a second cup before having to head to the equipment room. Now, he stood next to the troop truck, observing Johnny C. tell stories to Dennis Hognan, the left waist gunner, and Hank Rolfe, the engineer and top turret gunner. The only thing that Beans knew of Dennis was that he was from Columbus, Ohio and played football for Ohio State. He was average height, athletically built, and always wore his brown hair slicked back. The one thing that Beans always internally chuckled at was the fact that Dennis always had a toothpick in his mouth, and he would consistently move it around his mouth even when he was talking. Beans and Mills would joke that Dennis would still be chomping down on his toothpick even when he had his oxygen mask on. Today, Beans would get a chance to see for himself if this joke was in fact true. The other guy, Hank Rolfe, Beans knew nothing about. He knew this face and knew his name, but never interacted with him enough to learn anything new about him. Sadly, Beans seemed to prefer it that way. He had learned the hard way that the less you know about someone, the better. That way, if they go down in flames or get butchered up, it wouldn't be a person with dreams, aspirations, funny stories, special talents, and loved ones that got killed, but just a warm body. Before Beans knew it, Ronnie and the rest of Hellfire's officers had arrived at the troop truck, and soon the men headed towards their plane. Minutes later, the men of Hellfire arrived at their war-weary warbird, and the men were all unloading their bags and equipment from the back of the troop truck. Once they were done and the troop truck left, Beans made his way to the waste compartment door, which was located on the right side of the plane. Opening the door, Hank entered into it and bumped his head against the top of the curved door, which made the others laugh a bit. Turning around to talk to Beans was Hellfire's ball turd gunner, a short, scruffy-looking man who had the unfortunate nickname of Wolfman, 
a reference to the 1941 movie where Lon Chaney Jr. played a man who turned into a werewolf. Wolfman was covered head to toe in a thick layer of body hair. His eyebrows were that of caterpillars, and he had a thick head of dark hair that had to be cut every other week it grew so fast. Beans had never met or talked to the man, and most of that was due to Wolfman's condescending nature. Wolfman arrived in Thurlow shortly after the Berlin mission and flew a few missions with his crew in the 529th Squadron before he was transferred over to the 530th and joined Johnny C's crew. Subsequently, most of the people Wolfman wanted to be friendly with were members of that other crew or members of the 529th Squadron. How many is this for you? Asked Wolfman. What, missions? Beans asked, trying hard not to stare at the man's unusual appearance. Yes, you think that missions. How many missions have you flown? Beans had to think hard in order to give the man an answer. He hadn't kept track because it only discouraged him. He's flown a lot, more than any of us, Johnny C defended as Wolfman threw his stuff through the door and entered into the fuselage. Beans quickly thanked Johnny C and soon threw his bags inside the plane and pulled himself into the doorway as well. A half hour later, Jack and the rest of Tango's crew had completed most of their pre-flight checklists and most of the crew had time to take part in receiving prayer and communion by either Chaplain Schwartz or Father Motz as they made their rounds around the airfield. As Jack sat in the co-pilot seat, he couldn't help but take notice on the beautiful morning that was being slowly revealed as the sun's radiant light began pouring out from behind the horizon. Thurlow had become so green and vibrant. Trees which looked so dead and bare now looked full and healthy. Jack could hear the sounds of birds chirping off in the distance, and the slightest sound of morning doves blissfully alerted the world that the day was starting. So, uh, I don't believe we ever came to an agreement. Am I flying during assembly, or do you want to? Tango asked Jack, breaking his moment of concentration. Well, that's... <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter to me. I'm fine with it either way. Being Parnell's wingman is going to be a breeze since, you know, he can actually keep formation. Unlike some of these new kids, Jack said as he adjusted his parachute strap. Oh, I think uh, Erickson does a pretty good job. That new crew, though, can't say just yet. They seem very, very green, Tango responded as he took a few sips from his morning thermos. Erickson and AJ flew uh, number four on that mission to Bremen, and I heard Burke bitching up a storm later about how they couldn't seem to keep their ship on a steady position. You know it takes a lot for Burke to criticize another pilot. It's true. It's very true. I never flown a mission with them in the same formation, so that explains why I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Tango joked, passing the coffee thermos to Jack. Accepting the offer, Jack responded with, It's alright. Ignorance is bliss, right? Let's hope he can keep his ship on a steady line today. The boss put him as Burke's wingman. Well, not just that. He put Erickson and the rookies as his wingman. You'd think he'd be more uh, subtle in showing his dislike for someone. Yeah, well, at this point, I'm not sure there is a person the boss doesn't dislike. Did you guys keep it down? He may hear you. Shouted Tango's bombardier, Lieutenant Anthony Parati, from down in the nose. Yeah, he could be hiding somewhere, waiting to pounce on you like a hungry lion added Tango's navigator, 
Lieutenant Jay Saladonia. Trust me when I tell you, fellas, a rat couldn't hide in this thing. Tango countered with a smile. The group bantered some more before the announcement was made by Jack that the mission would be starting in just four minutes. All chatter ceased and everyone got into their positions. Moments later, the flare would be shot off and the bombers would begin taxiing to their selected runway. And one by one, the planes from the 529th, 530th, and 531st squadrons all roared down the runway and went into the beautiful morning air. Do you like war movies? Do they get your blood going? If so, I have the perfect, perfect podcast for you. This is not an affiliation. This isn't like a, we're sponsoring them, they're sponsoring us, so I got to mention them. This is just me strictly telling you about a podcast I love. The podcast is called Danger Close. It's a war film podcast where three hosts, a theater director, a movie critic, and a veteran come together each week to talk about a different war movie. Guys, this is a fantastic podcast. If you want to get into war films on just more than just a surface level, this is perfect. The hosts are phenomenal, the research is impeccable, and the quality of it is just phenomenal. I can't recommend this enough. So if you guys enjoy podcasts, you want more podcasts to make your day go by faster at work, or you wanted something to listen to while you're cleaning house or trying to fall asleep or you're driving in the car, guys, this is a perfect, perfect, perfect podcast to listen to. Danger Close, check it out for yourself. If you do, go onto the discussion page on Facebook and tell them that Aaron from Cancer 34 Studios and Snafu Podcast sent you. Thank you guys so much. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by visiting our website, www.snafupod.net, you can find all kinds of amazing free, it's important, free resources to help you find out more about the 8th Air Force in World War II and about the B-17 Flying Fortress. Right now, you can take a virtual tour of two real B-17s like the ones depicted in Snafu. Also, you can find links to movies, documentaries, and free YouTube videos, and much, much, much more. All you have to do is visit www.snafupod.net and check it out for yourself. Now, back to the podcast. Back on the ground, the boss had just returned from watching the planes take off. It was now heading to the mess hall to grab some breakfast. He chose not to fly today's mission mainly because it wasn't required of him since the 530th wouldn't be leading the mission and the entire sortie was categorized by the brass as a milk run. All throughout the night, the boss had fully mourned over his wife's death as well as Rosie and everyone else's death that he personally felt affected by or even blamed himself for it occurring. In the past, moments of emotional anger and vulnerability came as a result of the boss not being able to hold those emotions back so they were reactive. However, what happened last night was different. This time, he was allowing his sorrow, anguish, fear, pain, and heartache to spill out with no attempts to suppress them. A part of him regretted disposing of Catherine's things, but another part of him felt relieved that he essentially cut ties with his former life back home. He didn't have any plans on returning to his hometown or ever returning to live in the States as a regular civilian ever again. So what was the point of keeping all of that? It only served as a painful distraction to him and a point of contention with himself while he dealt with the duality that is grief. 
As for Ronnie, the boss wasn't sure how he felt about him. On one hand, he was still certain that Ronnie filled the newest members of his crew in on what he thought of the boss. But on the other hand, the more he thought about it, it was only a matter of time before the rookies would hear the scuttlebutt from someone else. What bothered him more than anything was the outright disrespect that men like Ronnie had for the boss. He was sure that Colonel Poole had either picked up on his squadron's disliking of him and his authority, or he would soon be educated in the matter. The boss had a plan to talk to Ronnie when he returned from today's mission and tried to see if there was a way for him to regain the respect of his fellow pilots. Arriving in the mess hall, the boss was excited to consume the day's meal, which was a bowl of breakfast hash and bacon. It had been a while since the cook known as Mama made breakfast hash and the boss was so hungry. Sitting down and ready to dig into his meal, that was when he heard Plank's voice coming off from the distance. There you are. Hi, Plank. I'm surprised you're not flying today. Oh, I figured it was nothing special, you know, just a milk run. Figured I could just take the day off, you know? Yeah, that was my thought too, said the boss. Plank sat himself across from the boss with nothing but a cup of coffee in his hands. Once he sat down, he opened up by asking, You, are you alright? The boss finished chewing the food in his mouth and then replied with, Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks? Ha! <laughs> I tell you what, you're one complicated man. Anywho, I was just chatting with some of the guys over there. All from my squadron, the 531st. You like them a lot. You should come over and talk to them. Thanks, but I'll pass today. Pass? Okay. I know we're not supposed to talk about the shit that's going on up here and all, but I have to know. Both as your friend and as a fellow squadron commander working for Uncle Sam. What the hell has been up with you? I mean, especially last night. What was all that about? Plank, don't worry about it. The boss said, cracking a smile. I want to worry about it. You were completely fine until your old co-pilot came by and then you got up all acting strange and you ran off. I had something I wanted to attend to, Plank. Nothing else. Bullshit, Anthony. Come on. You can't play stupid. You can't pull it off. What the hell happened? I just needed time to think. Okay, well, did you get it all out and thunk? I know what you're trying to do, Plank. Good, because I'm not hiding it. In fact, I will gladly reiterate my motives. I want you to tell me what's going on with you. That's not what I mean. I mean, you're trying to fish to see if I'm all right in the head. Well, Anthony, let's be honest. I'm in the same line of work as you. There isn't anybody sane doing what we're doing. What we're doing is straight up foobar. That, that is true. Good. We're in agreement. Now tell me. It's either you tell me, or if you're losing it, you'll end up telling Dr. Walker... Now share with the class. The boss looked down at his bowl of breakfast and took a deep breath. His fingers fidgeted with his fork. After hearing Plank beg him three more times, the boss finally spoke up by asking, Do you do you think those guys last night were the ones we were talking to? Do you think they acted a little weird towards me? Weird? What are you talking about weird? Since when should you give a damn if people treat you weird? Our job is to lead and manage, not to refrain from being weird. What I mean is, they seem to have been treated me different versus how they treated you. The guys from my squadron, that is. 
well, there's an easy explanation for that. Um, how about you are their squadron commander? It's nothing out of the ordinary for them to treat you different. Whatever you say, Plank. No, don't whatever you say, Plank me. Come on. Even I know you're not that dumb. You ask the question because you think you already know the answer and you want me to confirm that answer, right? So just tell me what your thoughts are and why, why you think they acted weird towards you. The boss paused for a moment and once again fixed his eyes back onto his food. Meanwhile, the boss could feel Plank's eyes locked onto him as he tried to give himself enough time to think out his answer. Okay, well, here it is. I've never told you this yet, but I may have done some questionable things in the past. Oh, don't tell me you took that girl pumpkin from the cock end to bed with you. What is your obsession with her? The boss asked, looking surprised and caught off guard by Plank's humorous joke. I just gotta make sure that she doesn't run the chance of reproducing with anyone. Knowing how ugly a sin she is, I can't have mini-me's of her walking around in the future. Europe has suffered enough. Plank jokes some more, all while making the boss laugh. <laughs> come on. What did you do? Plank? Tell me, come on. Okay, fine. I... I on a mission about a month ago, the boss began to say before being cut off by Plank when he said, Oh, please don't tell me you're still beating yourself up over that Brunswick mission. The boss was in shock that Plank knew about the Brunswick mission. You knew? Yeah, I've I've known since the first day I stepped foot onto Thurlow. I, I don't understand. It, was it Jack? Was it Ronnie? No, of course not. I barely know Jack, and I wouldn't believe him if he told me the sky was fucking blue. I don't know him. As for Ronnie, no, I didn't hear it from him. Why Why would I? Well, who'd you hear it from? I, I heard it from your old mechanic. What's his name? Butch. I came to him about seeing if he could help me in my mechanics fix an engine that our squadron needed fixing. Nice guy. Smells like a rectum of an artificial cow. But anywho, wait, 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 wait. Why would Butch tell you that? I don't know the same reason why Ronnie did if he was the one who told them. And that reason is because I, I don't know. It's something for them to bitch about. I'm sure that it happened in the same way it came up that it did with me and Butch. You know, he casually mentioned it. I seemed to be the only person in East Anglia that didn't know. So he told me it was at this moment that the boss took a step back mentally and realized something. He knew that once Plank knew of his mistake, he too would do to him what Burke and everyone else had done to him too. But according to Plank, he knew about the boss's mistake since even before they considered themselves friends. Yet they still had become friends. Nothing was different and nothing had changed. That's what all this is about, isn't it? You're afraid of others knowing about the mistake that you made. That's why you left last night in such a odd mood. God damn it, Anthony. It all makes sense now. What makes sense now? The boss said, still looking down on his plate, avoiding eye contact with Plank. The whole thing. You've been... You need to move past it, you know. Plank said, still having his eyes locked onto the boss's face. Oh, just move past it, huh? Yeah, that's what I said, Anthony. You want to be Mr. Big Shot, right? That's the whole reason why you did what you did, right? Well, the reality is you took a chance and it paid off. It was stupid and reckless nonetheless, but it worked. And you sure don't need me telling you that. You got a fucking promotion out of the whole mess. You're a squadron commander now. 
which is what you always wanted. However, what you don't understand yet is, is that to be a good leader and to be a good soldier in this line of work, in this field, you have to do more than just take chances. In this field, in this world, you have to not only take chances, but you have to own up to them if and when they fail or cost lives in order to achieve. Hell, the reason your men probably won't stop talking about your mistake is because it costs them their friends and they see that you haven't owned up to what you did wrong and therefore they have a leader who can't even admit to putting his men's lives as collateral in order to achieve something. That sucks for them. You want to do them a favor? You want them to respect you? Own up to your mistake. Show them that you're not afraid of making them. And you'll be their fearless leader regardless of the outcome. The boss sat in silence as he took in Plank's words of wisdom. He knew that Plank was coming from a place of love and care. And it was due to that. The stinging words of Plank were delivered to his psyche in a much more palatable way. I'll let you sit on this for a while. Plus... I'm keeping you away from eating your grub. I'll catch up with you later. Sound good? Plank asked as he got up from his seat and stood in front of the boss. The boss nodded his head, and in a flash, the friend and prophet known as Stephen Plank had disappeared among the swarms of other officers. And looking down at his watch, the boss saw that it was a quarter till eight, meaning the formation was 5,000 feet above Bedford, England, and grouping up with the other bomb groups, and were just 30 minutes away from their assembly point. Thirty minutes later, the formation had made its way to their assembly point, which was 10,000 feet above Oxford. Together, all 2009 B-17s were heading to their next waypoint, which was 15,000 feet above Bristol, England. Beans was currently in the radio room, sitting behind Johnny C, who was sitting at his radio desk. Beans' eyes were heavy as the sound of roaring engines and rushing air provided a type of white noise that to someone who was suffering from a lack of sleep was entrancing. He had another half an hour before he would need to get to his gunner station to test fire his guns. Until then, Beans was quite okay closing his eyes and drifting off into a dreamy-like state. felt like seconds later, Beans was hurled into a state of pure terror as he heard the sounds of gunfire. Nearly leaping upward into a standing position, that's when he realized that the group was just test firing their guns. Looking down at his watch, Beans was shocked to see that the entire 40 minutes had passed by since he had closed his eyes. Looking over at Johnny C, Beans pulled down his oxygen mask and loudly asked him why he didn't wake him up. Johnny C removed his mask, revealing a slight grin and replied that he had tried to, but knew he would eventually be awoken to the sound of gunfire. He assured Beans that he had checked his oxygen meter to make sure it wasn't clogged and that he wasn't passed out. After sarcastically thanking his friend, Beans made his way over to his waist gun, which was facing out the port side. Grabbing his 50 caliber gun, Beans slightly tapped his butterfly trigger using his gloved thumb, and then seeing the slight burst of a tracer round, Beans now knew that danger was now imminent. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by becoming a supporter of the podcast, you will receive bonus content such as 
pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, pictures and maps of the airfield and surrounding areas, as well as formation breakdowns of past, present, and future missions, and Q&A episodes. There is so much for you to gain by donating $3 or $10 to help support the podcast. If you would like to be a part of Snafu each week, please visit our Patreon page. The link for that's down in the show notes. Any support goes a long way in helping the podcast to continue. Your contribution is making a huge difference. Now, back to the podcast. The formation was just now minutes away from arriving at the initial point. Jack was now at the controls of Bad Penny with Tango acting as the co-pilot. Navigator the pilot, we're at the IP. Stay on course zero one niner. I repeat, stay on course zero one niner. Roger that. Pilot to Bombardier, I'm turning on the autopilot. She's all yours. Tango declared over the intercom. Roger that. Bombardier's opening. We're on the bomb run, fellas. Lieutenant Parati announced. As Tango and Jack let go of the controls, that's when the call came in that Flack had been spotted. As the formation headed on their steady course over the Carentan Peninsula, Jack was surprised that he couldn't hear any of the Flack, meaning that none of it was close enough to cause any damage. So far, so good. As the minutes ticked on by, the Flack began to get closer and closer to where the 300th was flying in the formation. Suddenly, constant sounds of exploding flak began filling the air, and the faint smell of cordite suddenly was wafted into the air. Jack, having grown tired of the awful smell, attempted to ignore his stomach turning. A moan of self-assurance fell upon Jack as he reminded himself that today was just going to be a milk run. The danger he felt was nothing like what he'd experienced on other missions. However, regardless of how much he tried to convince himself that he was going to be okay, the knot in his stomach and the tightness in his chest and shoulders was all too real for Jack to push past. I think we got a B-17 going down in the, uh, the first group. Lieutenant Saladonia reported. Is it the lead plane? Asked Tango. Uh, that, that's a negative. Watch out for shoots back there. Tango called out. Well, one minute to target. Called out Parati. Jack began looking around the formation, checking to see if any visible bombers from the 530th squadron had been hit. As he did, Jack watched as a flak burst exploded just above Burke's nose compartment. The burst was so close that Jack could see Burke's plane shudder. At that moment, Jack's heart stopped for he knew that Sal was in the nose of Stormy Night, and knew that the flak burst must have been too close for comfort. But before Jack could think any more of the possible fate of his navigator, Another call came in that a flak burst had gone off right in front of a fort flying in the 529th squadron. Before Jack or Tango could ask any questions, another enlisted member of the crew called out, Shit! That's Frankie's plane! Are they going down? Jack asked. No, the nose is blown to hell. It doesn't look good. Okay, well keep your eyes peeled for any sheets you may see. Jack commanded. Fifteen seconds for target. Lieutenant Parati called out. Jack quickly took a glance over at Hellfire from above, with its bomb bay doors open. Five, four, three, two, one, bombs away! Parati called out as the bombs were released. The sudden change in weight made the B-17 slightly jolt up, to which made Jack's stomach flutter in a way that Jack never got used to. As it did, 
That's when Tango switched the plane's autopilot off and took back the controls of Bad Penny, lowering her back to where she was. However, Jack noticed there was a potential problem. Jack the Ripper was still raising higher and hadn't drifted back down yet, and if Bad Penny had hit their prop wash from its number one and two engines, that could prove disastrous. Tango, prop wash, look out! Jack called out with his eyes locked onto Jack the Ripper's wing, and was even pointing forward attempting to grab Tango's attention to the potential problem. Then, in a flash, Jack's hearing was muffled. A ringing sound pierced his head. In front of him was a blood-covered cracked windshield with pieces of dark red, pink, and gray matter splattered all over the control panel and windshield. In between him and the grotesque mess that was on the windshield, the faintest cloud of smoke filled the air and the smell of burnt hair and melting in plastic also began to fill his nostrils. Beyond the smoke and messy cracked windshield, Jack saw Jack the Ripper was now drifting to the left and looked to be rolling away, as well as Stormy Knight, Beer Boy, Fenway, and soon, Hellfire 2 began rolling over top of them. That's when Jack realized what was going on. He was the one falling away from the formation, not them. They had hit Jack the Ripper's prop wash and were now on their way into a barrel roll, which would soon turn into a flat spin if they didn't recover fast enough. Pulling himself together, Jack grabbed the wheel and he could feel an overwhelming amount of resistance. Calling out Tango's name, Jack looked over to see Tango who was still holding onto the yoke. However, what Jack saw of Tango was the most horrid and rancid sight that his eyes had ever laid eyes on. Tango was gone. His hands were still holding onto the yoke, his arms led to his shoulders, but between his shoulders was no longer the chest face and head of his friend, but a fleshy, blood-squirting mess, and behind him was an orange glow that seemed to be engulfing him. Jack looked back forward, and with all of his might he forced the yoke to obey his command, and thankfully, just in the nick of time, Jack was able to level Bad Penny out, but now he was facing south, in the opposite direction of the formation. With flax still exploding around Bad Penny, Jack pressed the fire extinguisher on the number two engine, and soon the fire coming from that engine was snuffed out. Jack then feathered the number two engine, and that's when Jack realized that smoke was still filling the cockpit. Quickly looking back over to where Tango's butchered corpse was sitting, Jack saw that the control panel on the left side of Tango, as well as the section of fabric that was aligning the aircraft wall behind Tango's seat, was also in a blaze. That's when Jack called out for some help. Expecting to see Bad Penny's top turret gunner arriving to extinguish the fire, Jack was instead met with silence. With his eyes trying hard to glance over the grotesque mess and focus his sights on the area where the top turret was located, Jack was mortified to see not only the top turret gunner blown to bits and lying butchered at the bottom of his gunner's turret, but Jack could also see the gunners in the waste compartment preparing to bail out from the waste compartment door. With his mask now pulled down, Jack began yelling out, commanding that they stay inside the plane. Jack also realized that his hearing had not yet returned, as not only he could barely hear himself yelling, but he couldn't even hear the engines roaring. In amidst the commotion, Jack saw the radio operator arrive over top of the ball turret, as he was trying to attempt to get the ball turret gunner out of his ball turret and strap on his parachute. Jack cried out as loud as he could to try to get the radio man's attention. 
to his surprise, just as the radio man looked up, he and Jack locked eyes. And even from that far back, Jack could see the fear and terror in the radio operator's face. Jack muffled a few more cries for help, and finally, the radio operator left the ball turret gunner and headed toward the cockpit, leaving the ball turret gunner to get out himself and trap on his own parachute. Knowing that the radio operator was on his way, Jack set his eyes forward as he attempted to bank Bad Penny back towards the English coast, all while doing so without the ability to hear. As Bad Penny made an almost 180 degree turn over the beaches of the coastline of Normandy, Jack looked back to see if the radio man was taking care of the fire. Instead, Jack looked back to see the radio man standing in a state of not only terror but pure horror as he looked at the extensive damage done to both his plane and the two dead blown apart airmen in front of him. Jack was trying desperately to get the radio man's attention and Jack once again pulled down his oxygen mask and yelled out as loud as his vocal cords could allow, all while the fire was burning and cooking the flesh that once belonged to Tango, causing the horrid smell to grow stronger and stronger. The radio man finally looked up at Jack and then looked over at the blazing fire. Taking the extinguisher, the radio man aimed the hose at the area and began shooting the foam towards the flames, soon extinguishing it successfully. With Jack now thankfully looking back forward, he was relieved to see the formation was miles off in the distance, and below them was the Island of White, to which Jack knew and recognized. Turning back around to see the radio man, Jack was astonished to see that the man was moving his way back through the bomb bay and back towards the waste compartment, where he now was the only remaining member of his crew that hadn't bailed out yet. Not understanding why the radio man was still attempting to bail out, especially now that they were over direct water, Jack tried to stop the man from jumping, but it was too late. The man disappeared from his sight. Jack now had the sudden realization wash over him that he was flying a damaged warbird which was down an engine by himself with no ability to hear and nobody to help him or assist him in the landing since he assumed that both Parati and Celadonia were both dead in the nose. Should he attempt to bail out himself? Jack thought to himself. What if he just made it to the English coast and then decided to bail out? What if he decided to ditch in the channel if he couldn't make it? But then again, what if he botched the water landing and killed himself in the process? That's when the thought entered into Jack's mind. What if he crashed Bad Penny into the English Channel, ending it all? Shockingly, this thought relieved Jack and gave him an overwhelming sense of comfort. Thinking about just collapsing and giving in to the temptation of an early end, an end that he would get to choose, as well as a chance to die alongside his friend, who he had met that first day in St. Louis at the train station after saying goodbye to his family and his fiancée. But then again, what about his family? What about Marlene? Jack tried to reason with himself, almost playing a reverse version of Devil's Advocate. However, none of it was working. He couldn't bring himself to see the faces of his mother and father. He couldn't even remember what their voices sounded like. Marlene especially seemed to be nothing more than a faint, distant memory, of which none of his feelings that he had once had towards her now existed. He felt nothing but pain and sorrow. He couldn't care less what they thought. They hadn't had to endure the torture that he had experienced, and they certainly didn't have to live in the hell that he had to endure day after day. 
They too would have plunged themselves into the channel if they had lost the friends and acquaintances that he had and seen the things that he had seen. He knew that he was going to die soon. He knew that his number would one day be called up. So what was the point? Plus, he was so far behind the formation that for all of his squadron mates knew, Jack's plane had been hit and could have possibly crashed into the French countryside, or he could have landed behind enemy lines. They would just mark him as an MIA until it would be discovered that he in fact did die, to which then he would be marked as a KIA. His family would never have to know about the true nature of his death, and they wouldn't even dare think that he had died in some non-combat related way. As Jacques processed all of this, his hands began slowly forcing the yoke forward, allowing the nose of the aircraft to point slightly downward. The altimeter hand on the dial began moving counterclockwise as Bad Penny suddenly started losing altitude. The feeling of making his fantasy a reality suddenly gave Jack a euphoric feeling. He was finally going to be done with the torture. It was finally going to come to an end. The pain and embarrassment of losing Al on his first mission, the feeling of inadequacy related to him being disoriented after getting knocked in the head by that flak fragment, and then the shunning and hatred that he experienced from the boss afterwards, the frustrated heartache that threaded all of the memories of his past friends like Andy, Rosie, Texas, Hillhouse, and Mickey had become such a chronic pain to him that the realization that Tango and the memories surrounding him would soon be added to that thread became too much for Jack to bear. As the airspeed on Bad Penny rose and the altitude dropped, Jack closed his water-filled eyes as he accepted his fate, feeling comfortable with his decision. With every aching sound coming from the airframe, the ache and pain in Jack's soul began fading away. And it was at that moment, as he plummeted towards Earth, Jack for the first time in almost two and a half months felt happy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Snafu, a historical fiction podcast depicting the average life of a bomber crew in World War II. Please leave an honest review on whatever podcast app you're currently listening on. If you would like more information about the podcast, please visit our website and our Patreon page. Both links are down in the show notes. This podcast is produced by Canto 34 Studios, a DIY project that's helping to raise awareness to the brave young men who sacrificed their lives in the skies of Europe in World War II. I hope we can do it justice. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned next week for another episode of Season 2 of Snafu. Snafu.